Welcome back to take number two. I've missed you and your professionalism. <laughs> I really make it. Uh, I try to make everything top notch like this, and so um, my God. Well, here we are in the backyard of Ross Fletcher's house, Daddy Daycare. Got banners flying above us. What do you call those flags or something like that? I guess uh, it's bunting. Bunting. Can That's you hear what, the bunting? That is what Cattell Marte does when he's trying to get on first. Yeah. Or when you're decorating a British person's house. With ladybugs and lizards. Um, I'm beyond frustrated, and uh, the lack of professionalism shall show now, because <laughs> I uh, I can't believe this. I can't believe that we just did 20 minutes of Olympic coverage. It was gold. Gold medal winning coverage. I mean, we were, well, you were the Usain Bolt, and I was that Canadian kid. I'll give myself <laughs> silver medal coverage until that happened. God. This Just is, remember to press record next time. I mean, how is, hard can it be? I thought I had it going. <laughs> well, good to see you. It's been over a month. Yeah, and uh, I let my beard grow in honor of you being gone. Some things that we've touched on, but I'll retouch on here. Uh, some things went surprisingly well while you were gone. Summer showed up. Yeah, that was nice. Sounders had an awesome run of victories until so I'm told. you got back and saw... Got back and saw Portland, just beat the piss out of the Sounders squad in Portland. Yeah, that wasn't nice. And, um, yeah, I'm a month closer to getting married. That's also pretty That's interesting. That's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing that someone's going to tolerate tolerate all this, this professionalism. Well, you have one of those The Revenant-style beards, so I'm just wondering whether it's going to stay or go for the wedding. Uh, I believe that um, we're going to trim it. I was going to try and think of something snarky. I'm out of snark right now and just full of furious anger. I like um, this we thing, so it's basically your your other half is going to decide that, isn't she? Yeah, um, she's very reasonable. One thing I'm that I'm not to have, uh, per, hello, pretty Lori, um, the one thing I'm not to have is a cleanly shaven face because oh. it makes me look like I'm four, 14 years old. <laughs> and so... Um, no, I uh, normally I would keep my hair a little a little more cropped as well, um, but I've just let myself go, knowing that the wedding's coming. That's it. I know exactly what you're doing. Basically, you're going as scruffy and as unshaven as possible, and your wife, lovely wife to be, Laurie, will be thinking, mm, "Am I doing the right thing?" <laughs> and then when she sees you on your wedding day, yeah, all scrubbed up to within an inch of your life, she'll think, "Oh, this is the." Best decision I ever made. Great psychology, my friend. Smart, smart move, everybody. Um, never mind all the money that we have invested in it. It's the it's the beard that's doing it. <laughs> yeah, so I'll be um I'll be I'll be cleaning up, as they say, and then uh, then who knows after that? I could go full on Leonardo DiCaprio again and go. Never have to change your underpants because you've obviously done the deed and got married. So yeah. what's she going to do then? You hear that, Laurie? Locked that's, her in for good. That's what you have to look forward to. So um. <laughs> Well, you, you made a 28-hour journey back from Brazil, and you made it safely. Uh, I was going to invite you to go to the Mariners' day baseball game the day after you got back. Ah. I figured probably a reach, though, because, well, your wife hadn't seen you for a month. Your kid probably doesn't know who you are anymore. Maybe getting you out the day you get back is a little selfish of me. So, Well, you could have at least made the call. Well, put I, I put invited, the dilemma in my mind. At least I invited Cool Keith, so that's pretty cool. That's fair enough. And uh, we went down to the stadium, and the Mariners have had some trouble with the day games, getting people in on time. And for the second time in a row, I got there about 12.30 or so, and the lines were four or 500 people long. What and time did it start? 12.40. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you'd think that for the 
first pitch, you'd be able to that they'd be able to cycle people in faster. I don't know what the problem is. That's fine. It's a thing. But I was like, I'm not about to wait in this line for 45 minutes. And my buddy was running a little late, so we stopped at the bar, had a couple beers. Before you know it, it was the sixth inning, and I was like, well, those tickets just went to waste. So, Sounds like I didn't miss much. Privilege, everybody. That's, a, that's a, I can just waste twenty one dollars on a baseball ticket times two. So there we go. Anyway, uh, I think it's. September 21st, put it on your calendar. I got tickets for a day game. Ooh, there we go. So there you have it. I think I'll be around. Um, the uh, You were telling me about how I'm so hungry, and we had to talk about food for like 10 minutes, so let's do the abbreviated version, please. <laughs> um, I'm really curious about what Rio de Janeiro was like in terms of um, all they showed on TV. Some coverage was like, look how incredible this place is. And then the internet was like, look at all the poor people. They're like, the Olympics are ruining a community. And it's like, you have to navigate between those two things because of the competitors that are there that have put, that largely don't make a lot of money themselves that are putting their all into being able to compete at weird things like archery or whatever. Um, something that we normally don't care about, but once every four years. And so I wonder what your take of Rio was from seeing both sides of it. Kinda. It was it was so interesting and and, and Rio or, or Hio as Hio. the locals called it the R is an H there and I had an, a, a Portuguese speaking assistant called Roberta who is Roberta. How do you say Janeiro? Yeah, de Janeiro. It, the, the J is a hard J. Think Jose Mourinho. Jose and then the R in Ho. Genero. So Ronaldinho, one of the world's greatest players of his time, is actually Ronaldinho. Oh, cool. In Portuguese. Why, this is what I don't ever understand. Germany is just some dumbass name that we came up with in English when it's Deutschland. And why don't we just call the thing Deutschland? It's not like we don't have the letters for it or the ability to pronounce it. <laughs> we, we have the letters. <laughs> yeah. I get like when there's like other cultures where we don't speak. Like a Chinese, I can't pronounce their words correctly because they have a certain glottal sound to it that makes it happen. But I could say Deutschland, and I can... I mean, I'm, I'm sure I sound like some dumb American saying Deutschland, but... How did you say Ronaldinho? Yeah, so Ronaldinho just is Ronaldinho. Ronaldinho. Yeah, like just not too hard, is it? Come yeah, on, not like, too hard. And if we have to write it phonetically, then another letdown of the English language. And yeah. we're already butchering it. Your your people. Hey, 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 hey easy. Hey, okay, hey. so I'm sorry, I digress. But Rio, uh, yeah. fascinating city of contrasts, and I I was very fortunate to spend just over a month there, uh, living in a uh, a new hotel in a brand new shopping mall in the north zone of the city, which actually is the underprivileged. It was the deprived part of the city. The south zone is Copacabana, the famous beach, uh, Ipanema. I think I saw some pictures uh, of Where the, the Cristo Christ, the Redeemer statue is. Did you make it up there? Looking over people. No, I didn't get time, but again, luckily, I've been there three, three and a half years uh, ago yeah, 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 that's and right. seen it. Um, so in the south zone, it's all the posh stuff. In the north zone, it's basically crammed people into favelas, which are the low opportunity, uh, sometimes high crime neighborhoods. Shanty towns is what which, we, would, we would generically call them. I guess, I guess so. Yeah, it's difficult to exactly define them, but very tightly packed. I wouldn't even call them houses. Units, sometimes not even bricks and mortar, with, with windows, corrugated roofs, <sighs> narrow streets where you couldn't drive a car up. One of the favelas near us, Complex Dalimau, is huge and has has serious issues. But the only way to get around this sprawling favela is not by car but by cable car 
they'd install the cable car because Rio is built on several hills. It's oh, a yeah. glorious city from a, a geographical point of view. And so they have this gigantic, gleaming cable car which runs people from point to point within the favela. But don't get the wrong idea. I mean, favelas typically are places people want to get out of. Okay, they're strong communities in certain senses, but there's, there's big issues of poverty and crime. And so we lived in the North Zone, and, and sadly, you couldn't walk outside, really, of, of the hotel complex with the mall because on one side was a giant freeway and on the other side are favelas. And as a, as a, as a globe trotter, I'm always interested in, in, in learning other cultures, but we were advised it's just not worth going into these areas. And, and there were, again, there was a sad story of because 85,000 police and military were brought in to provide security for the games. They inevitably brought a lot of people from outside of Rio to come in and work in security. And a police officer from, I think, the north of the country was driving a police car, took the wrong turning, went into a favela and was instantly shot dead. Oh, my God. Because people thought, this is a police officer coming in here. They Ah. don't do that normally. This is our turf. Off you go. So, yeah... You have that end of things, and then you have the beaches down in the south zone, which are truly world-class, stunning, stunning natural phenomena with mountains rising either side of these curved sandy beaches of Ipanema and Copacabana. So a real city of contrast. You can live the high life, and you also see in what is a city of 16 million people some pretty desperate humans just trying to make a better go of it for themselves. Did you get a chance to, probably not, but did you get any sense of the people of Rio, of Rio, uh, of what they thought of the Olympics? Again, yes and no, because we were in pretty much a bubble, which was just how it had to be. And as I said earlier, I would have loved to have gone out and tried to sample more of the culture, but we were working every day. I was there for 30 straight days and, and, and long hours as well. So you don't get much time to go and sightsee or talk. But of course you chat. And we had, we had a, a young Brazilian assistant. She was only 19. Uh, and you got the sense that she wasn't actually that into the games. She was training to be a vet, but was just interested in this phenomenon that was coming to South America yeah. for the very first time. The Olympic Games had never been in South America. But there was a real split because when Brazil won the games, and moreover Rio won the games in 2009 to stage it, Rio and Brazil, the wider economy, was very good. It was buoyant. It was it was a basically a South American tiger growing all the time at exponential rates of growth, 10 11%, which is phenomenal for a national economy to grow year by year. But then four or five years ago, the economy tanked. Money started to run out, and people saw that these Olympics, uh. the largesse, of the greatest global sporting spectacular really shouldn't be afforded money when there's there's poverty and other issues to sort out. So the public was really split, really, really split. Some people really enjoyed it, lapped it up. Other people thought this is a huge waste of money. Really, funds should have been diverted elsewhere. And I think you saw that reflected in some of the crowds where even if they had sold out signs, 10, 15% of the stadium was still empty, unoccupied. I, I don't and, think I ever saw one event where it looked sold out. Which was a huge shame. And and this was documented by the media at the time and I covered Rugby Sevens and then every session of track and field. And the first session of track and field and we were already a week into the game so people had a chance to be captured by other sports before trying track and field. The very first session of track and field, when it started 
inside, it was documented by, by some media organisations that there were more media in the stadium than there were fans. Oh, my God. Now, that was just that was an exception because the stadium filled up for other sessions, but not always, you know, to half capacity, let alone capacity. But it didn't, the games didn't grab people as, I suppose, more were hoping it would. The obvious reasons, the economy, um, the, 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 the fact that South Americans, you know, they're, they're not into things like track and field. It's not normal because soccer is king. What else is big there? I, imagine NFL and then triple it. That's how much people care about soccer. Yeah, sure. In Brazil, it's all about that. Uh, and I mean, they're big into volleyball as well, but not in the same way. Yeah. It's all about soccer. So the Olympics was this shiny new thing that people weren't quite sure about. And it, it took a while to capture the imagination. How many people travel? Like, what are you talking about as an international population that comes in? How much is it normally, you've been to eight or nine of these things now, how much is it normally between locals that show up and people that come in for it? It's predominantly a local thing. And I would... I would I, surmise and I don't know how accurate this is it was probably a 75-25 split local to foreign travelling contingent and it was a long way for the core audience shall we say of the Olympic Games to come from North America and Europe but still they came in reasonable numbers and you always saw lots of different nationalities flags there which is what it should be about it's a global event but always you want the Brazilians, as they were the host nation, to be there in mass numbers. Uh, they were there in numbers, just not mass numbers. But uh, it was a bold and brave decision by the IOC to take the games to South America for the very first time. It's just a real shame that the economic circumstances were, were entirely different from what they were when Rio won the bid seven years ago. And it's winter there right now because it's yep. South America, mm-hmm. but summer games. Is that because it's based on where what the season is in Athens? Is that how they determine it's, that? It's always a summer competition. You have the Winter Olympics in, in winter. You have the Summer Olympics in what's known as the, the, the Northern Hemisphere summer, I guess. Yeah, right. It's always around it August lo- time. So. It looked like it was still summer even though it was winter yeah yes and no in that some days it would get up to 90 92 other days it wouldn't hit much beyond 70 75 and that probably helped with uh the the lessened impact of zika that the the temperatures at night particularly were pretty mild so there weren't that many mosquitoes around let alone the zika carrying mosquitoes I want to make a segment right now where we just say insults to each other and call it trash talk. <laughs> you can probably guess what's happening outside my backyard right now. Is This is some really good fo- foley that I'm doing. This is called the rich tapestry of Queen Anne life, isn't it? The bunting. All right, anyway. Um, it's a... Uh, it's, I'm always curious to know who would go to these things and how. And I, I guess if you if it was in America, a lot of people want to travel to America to see America. It's a destination vac- for vacations and whatnot. So people would probably come here more than other places that they. Um, I, I, I imagine Rio is far from everything, and it's a real challenge to get there. I don't know if that's. I guess so, but then when you get there, it has these world class sites like yeah, the sure. beaches like yeah. the Cristo the Christ the Redeemer statue Sugarloaf Mountain uh, it so looks beautiful oh it, I mean, on TV it looks spectacular and there are spectacular areas we were very lucky one morning to have a morning off and we wandered down myself and my cameraman and, and a few other people to Ipanema Beach yeah 
where loads of people are hanging out and it runs into Copacabana Beach. But where they meet, there's a fort, Fort Copacabana, and a rocky outcrop which divides the two beaches. Oh. And we sat uh, on these this rocky outcrop looking right the way down Ipanema Beach to the mountains and the favelas that bank beyond it, rising steeply away in the hills. And in, a, in the foreground, there's a big swell where surfers just go out and do their thing. Oh, cool. And it was, you grab a beer, sit on the rocks, watch it happen. And we managed to do this at sunset one night as well. And you just sit there and think, this is an amazing place. Amazing place. What's the beer cost you there? Well, um, not a huge amount. Uh, they have an, a beer called Skull, which always tickled us as Brits, me and my British friends there, because we had Skull beer as a staple in the 1980s. Spell that. Which was kind of the drunkard's beer. S-K-O-L. Okay. And they have it in full effect there in, in, in Rio, which was, which was quite amusing. So any Brits listening to this will totally uh, empathise with how we were just taken aback by drinking Skull <laughs> on Copacabana Beach. But it was all about Caipirinhas which is their drink of choice. It's their cocktail of choice. Cachaça, dump loads of sugar, what's, and then what's about cassasha? six. It's, it's a form of like liqueur. It's, okay. you know, it's a little bit like Sambuca maybe. Just not, not quite, but... And then six freshly squeezed limes muddled up Ooh. with ice. and It's really, really nice. Especially um, on a beach. Yeah, it was, yeah they know oh, how boy. to party over there. So And they know how to eat sushi. Oh, man, God, this is fascinating. The, the idea that... When you say sushi, I have no concept that Brazil would be the place to go for it. Yeah, I didn't either until I got there. And then I found out that outside of Japan, it's the second biggest Japanese nation in Brazil. And so, of course, the tradition of sushi is carried over. I'm going in a month. I can't wait, man. A month and three days or something like that, I go to Japan. going to be fabulous in Japan. Uh, <sighs> I love a bit of sushi, and this was a great surprise. Brazilians eat meat, and then meat with a side order of meat. <laughs> so it was really nice to have a contrast from meat, although the meat was lovely, and they always cooked it fairly rare, which I love. But they had sushi. And in my shopping mall, where I was staying in the hotel, my favorite place was to go to a little... Uh, outlet of sushi yeah and you could order a boatload <laughs> of sushi and when i say a boatload of sushi i literally mean sushi in a miniature wooden boat stop and they put all the rolls on it and then you get your soy sauce and whatever else and ah oh, it's fabulous and they, they they take ages to freshly make it how it should be done and out comes a boatload of sushi so managed to eat lots of that good stuff did you go like every day Probably went four days in a row. Oh and then my thought, god! Maybe I should stop. Oh, never stop. <laughs> um, how about uh, did you get a chance to watch any of the Olympics that you weren't covering? A little bit, a little bit, but we're working long, like fourteen, sixteen hour days, quite a lot. Just the nature of the job. So when the track and field was on, not really. Yeah. But I saw a bit of the swimming on TV. Didn't go and see any other live sport. So my two sports, I was lucky enough. I saw so much because I was doing track and field every morning and sure. night session and six days of rugby sevens. Brand new Olympic sport, which is like NFL on steroids. Yeah, it yeah. was such a captivating sport. So imagine an NFL-sized field but with seven players aside. So oceans of open space. And unlike the NFL, where you have to throw the ball oh. forwards, you have to keep the ball alive and throw it backwards. And so the the game never stops. The clock never stops. And like when someone's and, tackled and down, when the ball's down, they start right back up again. Yeah, right they away. get straight back up. And if you don't release the ball quickly, it's a penalty and the opposition get possession. So the only time that the clock stops and the ball 
goes dead is if it goes out of play on either sideline or if a try is scored, the equivalent of a touchdown. So it was captivating sport. So the only two sports I really saw were all the track and field and rugby sevens, but that was enough to gorge on for their, what, 17 days of competition. Sure. Some stuff that I saw that I I like the stuff that is like the swimming's fun and the track is fun. I like the field stuff of the track and field. I love watching the javelin and the and the pole vault and the hammer toss or hammer throw or whatever they call it. Um, I like those ones because it's like these people, their life revolves around something that like no one gives a crap about. And so like to be able to like throw a stick really far off to, or like once every, I know they compete uh, internationally all the time, but to get attention for it once every four years, that's so much pressure for the, you know, everyone loves soccer. Everyone wanted to see Neymar go home with the gold, obviously, the Brazilian star or whatever. But no one knows the first person that throws a javelin. That's so I loved catching stuff like that, which was fun. Also, uh, handball, which is uh, oh, I got really into handball in London four years ago. Yeah, it's terrific. I watched one match and it was real boring, but it was uh, oh really? I could see the potential for it being great. It's fast paced. It's brilliant. So you're telling me you didn't enjoy watching Usain Bolt? Um, So that finally, that's actually where where I'm going. Actually, is that. Uh, you know, you saw all the exciting Olymp- all the exciting um, swimming, and then the women's gymnastics team. I did not watch enough of, but that was such a great story. And there's, as in terms of athletes, they're bananas. The amount of skills that they have. Get out of here, B. Um, but then, to towards the end of the games, I knew that I would hopefully be able to catch you on TV via a side shot from someone else's camera. Hopefully, of you <laughs> picking your nose or something, as you <laughs> previously described to me as the goal to not do. But I never got to see you interviewing anybody or anything like that, except for when other people posted it that they had found it because NBC didn't show any of the of your organization yeah so i was working for effectively the world feed yeah. so my interviews went to every tv broadcaster around the world they either used them or they didn't nbc sends two and a half thousand of its own staff to cover the games on behalf of america so they don't need me so a lot of the, the countries that use my stuff is where they haven't been able to send a reporter so i was by the track and field finish line maybe 30 feet behind the finish line at track level incredibly privileged position and as soon as the athletes finished their race or their lap of honour if they won a medal they'd have to be funnelled through our interview zone <sighs> where basically it's just rows and rows of TV reporters how many? then radio reporters probably 50 TV reporters oh my god and then 15 radio reporters oh. and then the athlete goes down into the bowels of a stadium and there's again loads of newspaper and digital reporters all wanting to get a slice of the action what happens if the if the athlete that won doesn't speak the language of the report like you're the first one there do they have someone else that speaks well yeah you have to organize translators and they have language services there so you think ahead but even then the athletes sometimes didn't want to stop because you you sort of know going into it who's the favorite and stuff so you would be able to prepare if a guy that doesn't speak any english is favored but if there's an interesting story then you really want to be prepared and sometimes you're not prepared because you don't see the story until it happens one of them for me one of my favorite stories because we wanted the Brazilian athletes to do well. Yeah. And as I mentioned earlier, they don't really have a pedigree in track and field. But there was a Brazilian 110-meter hurdler, and I can't quite remember his name right now, but wore sunglasses, like a big dude, a big, strong, strapping guy, and it was wet. The one night it rained in the track and field stadium, it poured for about half an hour. And they let the 110 hurdles continue during this downpour for a while. And this Brazilian guy was hurdling, and he wasn't going to qualify for the final. 
until at the very end, he dives over the finishing line. Yeah, yeah. He dives over. What on earth is this guy doing? But actually, his dive got him qualification. And it's not always seen as the thing to do, sure, the sportsman-like thing to do to dive, but it sure made an impact. And he came off the track and came round, and I thought, I've got to interview this guy. Luckily, I had my Brazilian assistant who speaks Portuguese. I just approached him and said, um pouquinho in inglês, por favor? A little bit in, in English, yeah, please. Sure. And he said, yeah, yeah, of course, of course, not knowing what to expect. No problem. I, le- I learned English two years ago. Two years ago, I-, I knew no words of English, and now I'm really good at English, aren't I? Listen to me. I want to. I want to tell my story. <sighs> okay, camera's rolling. Off we go. And I just said to him, "What? What happened with the finish to the race? It looked. It looked extraordinary." He says, "Oh no, no, no. This is normal for me. This is my thing, man. This is my thing. I always do this. Last year, World Championships in Beijing, I died for the line, man. I had to make it. I had to make it. I died for the line. I broke my rib doing it, but I had to be there. And I thought this time again, if I'm not going to qualify, I need to dive. So I dived over that line. I got my qualification. I made my country proud, beating his chest." I thought, wow, okay. And I said, well, what does it mean then to be in the final? And he just exploded with his story. And this is one of the joys of the Olympics. Like you mentioned earlier about the field athletes who don't get much attention. 90% of athletes go unnoticed most of their careers. Absolutely. This is their moment to shine. So they are very willing to tell their story. And he just poured out with emotion his story of being in Brazil. And, you know, I didn't have a chance here. So I decided one day... I'm going to do whatever I can to be at the Olympics. So, sold my house, I sold my car, I left my family, and I flew to San Diego. And I went to America, and I I didn't know a word of English, and I <sighs> went and learned English, and I trained as hard as I could to be here, and now I've made it this far. And he was just fantastic. Oh, and then he, the best. he ran off, bounded off, happy as you could be. And me and my cameraman just looked at each other and just started laughing in kind of a really happy, joyous way. Yeah. Just because you didn't know what had hit you at that moment, this ball of energy oh, who wonderful. was so happy to have achieved what he just had. And for me, that's so much of what the Olympic Games are about. That spirit that people show, the sacrifices they make to get where they want to get. And so it's lovely when something like that pans out. Now, a final thought. I'm going to make you pick because it's and it's not fair because I know that each has their advantages and disadvantages, but your favorite between the winter and summer Olympics. Oof, ooh, tough one. Uh, as you say, they're, they're great points to both. But I think for star power, the summer games, because you know, being able to chat to people like Usain Bolt, who is a legend, who is holding the beacon of hope for the Olympic movement right now, uh, as a showman, a true entertainer. Yeah, you always want to see that. Yeah, being able to chat to him minutes after he's finished his race is such a thrill. And again, I mean, you did this in uh, in London as well. Like, uh, yeah. This is the two Olympics in a row where you've talked to the maybe the best runner on the planet. Oh, ever. By, by no... Sh- by no shadow of a doubt, he's that he is the best Olympian I think we've we've probably ever seen. He he won nine golds in nine races in his three Olympic games, and you know he called himself a legend in 2012. Fair enough. And I said to him one of the questions after he won the hundred meters, 
you called yourself a legend for your exploits in 2012. What does this make you? And he said, oh, well, you know, man, um, I came here to be, you know, the best and I proved it again. I executed my race and somebody said, if I win this, I will be immortal. So I am immortal now. <laughs> and he's just a great showman. To get lines like that as a journalist out of people like that, it just makes it so worth it from, from that point of view. Chances are slim that he remembered you from last time, I'm guessing. Yeah, no. He kind of has a lot to deal with. And yeah, you've got to remember, for a guy that runs, does 9.8 seconds worth of work, uh, he then has to go and do two hours worth of media straight after his race for 9.7 seconds worth of work. Now, uh, I brought this up in the previous recording of this podcast, which I keep bringing up again. But that 100 meters that he can run in less than 10 seconds is effectively from... Goalkeeper to goalkeeper in the on a soccer field on a soccer field or from end zone to end zone uh, if you're playing football uh, American football and then for him to turn around and do the 200 and be disappointed with his result because he didn't break 19 seconds from running from one penalty spot to the other one and then back in 20 seconds is that's mind boggling that oh that would happen. incredible insane I mean I bet even if you were like a top level collegiate athlete that would probably still be insane to yeah think I mean that way. try running a block or near your house a single block yeah that's probably going to be 100 meters let's say see how long it takes you and then you realize how superhuman some of these athletes are i think i pulled a hammy just thinking about it <laughs> so what do you think uh winter or summer summer i you still said? think summer okay i still think summer i mean i love winter because it's very uh well, I, I just I, I love skiing you know but and, uh, and the athletes are much more I don't know what it's difficult to say there's much more of a community feel about the winter game Mm -hmm. because they're smaller and there are sports like the freestyle skiing and snowboarding where it just feels like a bunch of buddies going out and having fun hashtag weed yeah and if if you say so yourself and the the, the, Ross is not agreeing with me he was just carrying on the conversation (laughs) for everyone that's I just caught him off guard and the, the summer games is all about winning that gold medal and four years of hard work and sacrifice. Not to say that the winter athletes don't go through that, but the stories you get from the summer games are quite remarkable. I think there's a lot more individual pride on the line. Um, Well, I guess both of them. I guess both of them have the same number of team sports. I I don't know. The summer has always, since since the the, the late 19th century, it's always been about the summer games. And the winter games have come along after. And they started to, to, to grow... But they're never never on the same scale as a, a summer Olympics. Oh, that's crazy. Okay, so when you left, the Sounders were bad. Mm. When you got back, the first thing you see is the Sounders playing badly. Yes. You got back midweek, Sunday, big match, Portland away. And boy, in one half of, of football, soccer, do they look really poor. And that's unfortunate. But while you were gone, let me assure you. Please. Ziggy was not out sick when you were watching that match. They actually, they fired him. (laughs) Rest in peace, Ziggy. He's still alive, but still. R.I.P. Ziggy. Um, And Brian Schmetzer has taken over. And whatever, whatever the case was, a guy that was already there stepped up and things changed immediately. It seems like there was a big shift in locker room mentality. It seems like a few guys who were unhappy came out of their shell. A real Mourinho leaving Chelsea and suddenly Eden Hazard this year is come alive again. You have some guys that maybe weren't playing at their highest level and Ziggy left and they changed the formation around a little bit. So then we talked about, you know, at Infinite 
for five months. Yep. They changed around the formation and the Sounders came to life. I know it's hard to believe. I know that this that you might think this is a stretch, but it happened. And they looked really good. Then you get back for Brazil for nothing at half. It's nothing to do with me. Thank you very much. Okay. But oh my, that defending against Portland. I don't think I'd seen a Sounders team defend as badly as that. What happened, in I your mean, estimation? People keep saying three games in eight days, and yeah, there's there's some element to that. But set pieces. Yeah. Seattle didn't even want to mark at set pieces. That is a basic. Now, it's not they didn't want to mark, and Portland were clever with doing a few pick moves. But still, a couple or three times they got players wide open to score goals or go very close to scoring goals. But it was more than that. That's just the start point for their defensive problems. There was very little protection from that central midfield. And that's unusual from Ozzy Alonso. He had Christian Roldan alongside him. but Whose name didn't even get called. I didn't really see Roldan yeah. in terms of defensive responsibilities. And it he was- has been phenomenal. To be, uh, to be fair to him, he had four games in a row where he looked just stunning. For, for where he was to where he is now is fantastic. He just had maybe that's a case of three games in eight days and he just was not ready to perform. But also the wide midfielders didn't help, didn't track the runners, didn't look to try and muck in with their defensive responsibility. So it's a team thing, team defending. It's never on an individual, um, unless you're Shane Duffy of, of, of one of the English clubs who scored two own goals and got sent off inside two games <laughs> um, a couple of weeks ago. Poor him. But it was just horrific to watch yeah. that defending. And at half time, you thought, well, if Portland don't take their foot off the gas, this could be... This could be an NFL score. This could be really embarrassing. Luckily, Portland did take their foot off the gas. Seattle also managed to score a couple of goals to save some face. But my, I mean, how how can they defend like that against their greatest rivals? Particularly, as you say, coming off what had been a really good run of form where people were thinking, actually, you know, this this whole fanciful idea of the playoffs might not be so fanciful after all. I was listening to the radio broadcaster. Someone was saying that, uh, maybe it was Danny Jackson, was saying that there didn't seem to be any leadership on the field, that the senior guys weren't getting things done, that they weren't motivating the younger guys to get out there and hustle. Did you did you notice anyone that was looked fired up out there? Did you like- no, not really. And that was a real shame, particularly in a derby game like that. As we mentioned, it's Portland. It's yeah. Portland Timbers. Especially no, coming out off a win here at home just a couple against weekends. Against the Timbers. Yeah, yeah, it's no like game a- matters more than your greatest rivals. But you've got to remember in that dynamic, the starting 11 doesn't have that many forceful personalities. Yeah, You've got Brad Evans, who's, who's a highly intelligent guy, very good team player, but he's not a shouter and a screamer per se. Chad Marshall alongside him. Again, another player like Ozzy Alonso, who very much leads by example, but doesn't lead vocally. You look to people to lead vocally. Clint Dempsey off the field, and we wish him well with his health issues, and yeah, we oof. still don't quite know what's going on with that. But we're all thinking of him and hoping that they can get that rectified. Nicholas Ladero comes in, there's the language barrier. Uh, I mean, will he be a leader in, in that, that vocal term? And you're running out of players even by Even Stefan Fry, who's like a quiet dude. who's like Yeah, a, Stefan Fry as well. He seems screaming yeah. his head off sometimes, but still. And it's not to say that, that people who shout and scream 
are going to be better players and will have a huge effect on how a team performs. Yeah, but when you're down. But you need those characters yeah. in the locker room and out there to organise, to cajole, to get things going again. And as you saw, it took until half-time when the coach, Schmetzer, could have some words with the players for things to change. So down the stretch, you're, you're worrying and thinking, well, where are those characters that are going to pull them through? If they are, now what, four points outside of the playoffs to have a shot with eight games to go? Now, I mean, but then you see at half the introduction of Roman Torres. And suddenly you put a big, it's not fair, but a big, young, vibrant presence in the, in the, in the center back pairing there. And things change a little bit. That... He's, uh, he brings something a little bit different than uh, Brad Evans would to that same position. Yeah, um, he's been out a long time. He's been out nearly a year, Roman Torres. Yeah. And he's got an international call-up with Panama. Great. Having just played 45 minutes in a year. So we'll see whether he gets used. Maybe a blessing in disguise for the Sounders because he could get match fitness playing for his national team. You just hope that he doesn't get overworked there. Um, but he is a big hulking presence. We'll see what kind of form he can recapture. It's still a bunch of ifs, but he was brought in with a very good reputation before he did his ACL. Some players come back fine from ACLs. Other players, like my former club, Derby, player called Craig Forsyth, just came back a left-back from an ACL. Uh, two games into the new season, he did the same ACL again. So you uh. never can exactly tell. By the way, uh, uh, Trash Truck Wars are back. Um, Talking trash with Ross and Greg. I think they know we're recording something, so they're deliberately emptying the same bin that they emptied half an hour ago. Um, Some great folly folly work today. So, (laughs) yeah, we wish Roman Torres the best. I mean, it's going to be a fascinating eight games, isn't it, to see whether the Sounders can pull this season out of the fire. I want to work on assumption here, which is dangerous, but Roman Torres comes out and starts playing... Night, full 90 here in two weeks when the Sounders are back, two weekends. Let's say he's good to start. What are you going to do with your defense if that guy's available to play a full 90? What do you do as Coach Ross? <laughs> I think the assumption is always that Brad Evans moves, that Chad Marshall and Roman Torres will be your centre-backs. And where do you put Brad Evans? Do you put him at right-back? I will say, um, I don't know the guy, so I'm not trying to be mean or anything here. It'll sound it maybe, but I did not think that uh, Tyrone Mears looked like he gave a crap out there playing the other day. It looked like he was like at some point just kind of switched off a little bit, and that I mean you saw it. He got subbed out. He didn't have a good game, and that will put. That's my theory. You put pressure on players, and no player, no matter what their reputation, should ever be guaranteed a spot. Right on the the, the long and successful career Tyrone Mears has had, then you think, well, he's a lock for a first team spot with the Sounders in Major League Soccer. But not necessarily. So Brad Evans, who to all intents and purposes, once Roman Torres gets back, will be fighting for that centre-back spot, will probably have to move, not necessarily moving into central midfield. Ladero is now in there. Does Evans take the Roldan spot alongside Ozzy Alonso? Does he go to right-back? Does he even go to left-back? Where Joven Jones has, has not had a good year. All sorts of questions. It, I always want Brad Evans to play right in the... He's not a fiery enough guy, but I want him to play right in front of the central defense so that way he can still have that role and drop back when someone bombs up the sides. 
But at the same time, you've already got Alonzo. You've got Freeberg, who has really come on as that defensive midfielder. And then Roldan. So you have like a pretty good trio of three guys for two spots already. So the Evans debacle, that's really tough for me because he's a great player, great mind. But what do you do with them? What do you got to remember is it's a it's a good selection dilemma to have rather than thinking, oh my, how are we going to fill this hole or that hole? It's great, we've got accomplished players and not enough spots for all those guys. That's the that's the, the job of the head coach. That's why he gets paid the big bucks. Yeah, I wonder if Schmetzer's getting paid the big bucks or if he's getting the interim bucks right now. And so it's a, a question for the front office, I suppose, that they won't answer. Anyway, so we have an international break. Some players off running around. I imagine Ladero's going to go. <laughs> running around, yeah, just doing a fanciful thing in their home nation, yeah. Yeah, you know, just that Just thing. kind of international soccer. It's no big deal. Did Ladero get the call up? I haven't looked at that yet. i got to check that out. I'm sure he did. And Torres and, uh, you know, I'm sure several more that are out doing that. Jordan Morris as well with the U.S. national team. Meanwhile, some resting of the legs for some other people probably to get them charged up for a return. San Jose away, I believe, is in two weekends. And then the LA Galaxy here at home. You don't seem to have a single player not injured right now. 925. And we get to see Steven Gerrard. Oh, wait, is it away? I can't remember. It's uh, LA Galaxy with Steven Gerrard, who I always love to see. And um, yeah, that... Uh, Dos Santos character is whew, he is something else man I think he's going to be real good and a real problem for the Sounders for a long time he didn't show much last time when they were here I think you were gone already maybe not when the Galaxy were here last uh, I saw the game where Robbie Keane scored the early goal yeah, yeah Dos Santos was there he was quiet he was kept quiet actually but right. he's a very good player. Oh, my God. They've got a lot of names on that team. So, anyway, like uh, a week off then before the team regathers to play uh, San Jose next. That's another big battle in the West. It's crazy to watch the Cascadian rivalry. Everyone is fighting for a playoff position, which blows my mind that it's been that rough for this region of the country. But MLS, man. It's going to be a frantic couple of months, that's for sure. Seattle, San Jose, 9-10, followed by Vancouver um, here on the 17th, and then at LA Galaxy on the 25th, 1 p.m. So, pretty cool. It's going to be a run-in to remember.